Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this week's podcast, I wanted to let you know about our next live event. At 7pm on Tuesday, the 17th of October, I'll be hosting a special live recording of this podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show, with a great guest, the comedy writer and gender critical warrior, Graham Linehan. Graham, as everyone will know, achieved huge success with Father Ted and the IT crowd and numerous other TV shows and sitcoms before being brutally cancelled for believing in biological sex. He'll be joining me to discuss cancel culture, gender ideology, and his new memoir, Tough Crowd, How I Made and Lost a Career in Comedy. He'll also be taking questions from you, the audience. This is a free event exclusive to Spiked supporters, so if you're already a Spiked supporter, go to the online donor hub now, where you can register for this event and claim your free ticket. If you're not already a Spiked supporter, now is the perfect time to sign up. For as little as £5 a month, you can grab your ticket for my live discussion with Graham Linhan, and you'll also get access to lots of other perks as well, including ad-free reading on Spite, access to our comment section, and access to other free events like the one I'm doing on Tuesday. So become a Spike supporter now by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Claim your free ticket for my chat with Graham Linehan. Sign up for other perks as well. And I'll see you at 7pm on Tuesday, the 17th of October. Perhaps this is something I should have seen a long, long ago, but I, I have been disabused of any notion that the left is salvageable, the progressive leftist, whatever you want to call it. Lines have been drawn and I'm with whatever people aren't celebrating rape and torture and murdering of entire families. I feel like I live in Upside Down. It is crazy to me. This is barbarism. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Bridget Fettersey. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of your work. I'm delighted to have you on. Um, People will know you as a comedian, as a podcaster, as a YouTuber, They'll have seen you on the Joe Rogan show talking sense about lots of issues, making jokes about lots of issues. So I, I think listeners will will be really pleased that you're on this podcast now. I want to tap into some of your funny observations about the world, but I'm going to start off by asking you about something that's a bit depressing, if that's okay. I want to ask you about really the only story in town at the time we're talking, which is the whole Israel situation. Um, Hamas's invasion, um, extraordinary scenes of barbarism, horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. And then a very strange discussion about it all in our countries, in the US, in the UK, from sections of the of the left, from su- supposedly progressive politics. 
What have you made of all this? What's your take on on what we're currently seeing in terms of the event itself and the discussions around it? Uh, it's so upsetting. You know, the the images, it reminds me actually of when the war in Ukraine began and just all of those horrific videos we we have first of all we have access to imagery that I did, certainly didn't have when I was growing up. I think the younger kids on TikTok and whatnot are much more used to this or desensitized to it. But we had a very sanitized media growing up. They, I'm, I'm not exactly sure that that's good. I think seeing the graphic nature of war in particular and terrorism is something that is probably important. But I do wonder how much of it you become desensitized to as well. So just that um, not knowing, I, I read this, this very astute activist who said, everyone becomes a historian when they see a dead Jew. And that stuck out so much to me because what's so, I, I'm getting chills even talking about this and I'll do my best not to cry because it is, the images are so disturbing. The apologism that just in any society, I would think we would all be able to gather together and say, this is wrong instead of trying to automatically rush to justify it, but not only justify it, we're seeing protests of people all over the Western world. You, these people would kill you. <laughs> Do they not? That's what I don't understand. It's like a complete divorce from reality that I cannot really get my mind around. And I just said on Twitter, I'm like, I've been, and perhaps I'm very late to this. Perhaps this is something I should have seen a long, long ago, but I, I have been disabused of any notion that the left is salvageable, the progressive leftist, whatever you want to call it. I think that this moment, for better or worse, has drawn, lines have been drawn. And I'm with whatever people aren't celebrating rape and torture and murdering of entire families, not to mention there's just been so much historical... There's always a reason to kill Jews. Historically, this is the oldest conspiracy theory in the world. And it's just upsetting. It's upsetting. It's uh, It seems like um, elite anti-Semitism to me. My friend in Israel said this morning, she said, I'll take a redneck who thinks Jews have all the money over this any day of the week. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's it's interesting you say that because I've had lots of messages on Instagram and via email as well from people in Israel. Firstly, thanking Spiked for its coverage because we tried to put a very sane, principled take on all this stuff, um, but also making similar comments to yours, which is that um, to, to the one that y your friend in Israel made, which is very much along the lines of look you know, the old kind of anti-Semitism was at least up front, you know, at least it, it kind of announced itself as it was coming in the door, whereas the new stuff is a bit more slippery because it gets dressed up as being pro-Palestine or it gets dressed up as being anti-Israel when in fact there's a kind of darker 
thing lurking underneath. This is not to make it all about us in the West, because people in Israel right now have got far bigger problems than woke idiots saying stupid things online. But what's interesting, I think, from the perspective of um, observers like me and you, is what this does reveal about the progressive left um, and reveal about those in our society who pose as the kind of gatekeepers of correct moral thinking. And I think they have been exposed. And you make a point there about, you know, these people would be killed if they were in Gaza. And I think that is an important point. Do you remember that group from a few years ago called Queers for Palestine? And it was kind of these pink haired people holding up a big banner saying Queers for Palestine. Now, queer people should offer solidarity to whoever they want to offer solidarity to. But if you held that banner up in Gaza, you wouldn't last five seconds. No, it's, it's, it's really... I think Thomas Chatterton Williams, right before we jumped on, had tweeted something about um, decolonization showing its whole ass right now. And I do appreciate free speech because you can, they're not even hiding the quiet part. They're just saying it. And then it does lead me to, you know, if you play that tape forward and follow their ideals and their, their kind of, whatever their beliefs are. One is that UK, United States, we need to be decolonized as well, which, you know, I can only infer that they would be celebrating the same things happening in our countries as well. And I guess that is the line to me that has been drawn, which is you are either in this, as my friend called it, an upside, you know, a moral upside down, or you're fighting for Western ideals because this is not something I can get behind. You know, I'm just, I just can't, I can't get behind it. If you're saying, if there's all these people who are like, what did you think decolonization means? Well, then this is what you mean for all of us. And I, I, I don't know how that's somehow a resistance movement you're expecting people to get behind, but yet there's, there's, you know, we've seen, we've seen hundreds of thousands of people all over the world celebrating this. It's not, it's, it's been, I can't even imagine what it's like to be in Israel or Gaza. I know that there are, you know, my, my friends in Israel, they have such a more accurate and clear perspective on all this stuff. They live and work with Arabs. They know that they're, they know Palestinians. They know that not everybody, you know, they're not dehumanizing everybody in a way that I think happens online. But at the same time, a lot of those people at that rave were dancing and believed in peace and my only conclusion that I can come to from looking at what is happening now is that this is what Hamas would do if left unchecked to everyone in Israel. I mean, perhaps I'm wrong, but that just seems like, I'm like, I don't know, call me crazy. I don't know much. I'm just not on the side of people whose core value is death to all Jews. Yeah, yeah. that's a zany notion that you put forward there. Um, It's like, yeah, you know that question, what did you think decolonization meant? Well, to be honest, I thought it meant taking Immanuel Kant and John Milton off the campus syllabus and taking down statues of, you know, Cecil Rhodes or whatever. I mean, that is what people have presented to us as decolonization over the past few years. And now suddenly you discover that it means going to a music festival and shooting unarmed 
20-somethings as they're dancing. Teenagers. Teenagers. And they hate women as much as they hate Jews. Free women are just as equally as hated as that. The level of disconnect from the people who are free in these Western societies and are celebrating this from what the actual beliefs of these terrorists are doing and believe and say and would do to them is wild to me. That just seems crazy. It's so there it's so wildly self-destructive so uh let's talk a little bit about identity politics um whatever that means well you can tell us what you think it means because i i do think that some of the discussion around israel the absolutely crazy discussion um from as you say people who live uh, unimaginably luxurious lives in the western world i mean i there was a statement from a bunch of social justice campaigns at harvard university and you think god these people in the leafy surrounds of cambridge massachusetts with lives of peace and plenty that billions of people could only dream of you know saying well israel is totally to blame for this it's not it's not the fault of the hamas gunmen who carried out the actions it's all the, it's all the israelis fault um, there is that kind of otherworldliness. They just they just are not connecting. But I wonder how much that kind of thing is underpinned by their identitarian preconceptions. You know, they're, they're, this desire to put everyone to categorize everyone, whether they're oppressed or whether they're privileged, and it becomes a very fixed categorization. So they could even look at something like the barbaric uh, onslaught against Israeli Jews and think to themselves, "Well, hold on." The Jews are mostly white and Jewish people are privileged, whereas the Hamas gunmen are Muslims and Muslims are oppressed. And therefore, the whole problem here is the Israeli Jews rather than the Hamas terrorists. Do you think that it's got to a situation where their identitarian worldview is just polluting everything that they think and say? I mean, clearly, because I don't know how you could logically arrive on at these conclusions. I don't... A lot of the people... We have got to a point where, and I do think this is why victimhood is also so valuable in our society, valuable currency. Not only does it get you attention, but we've got to the point where this oppressor-oppressed relationship means essentially you can do whatever you want. If you're oppressed, you can do whatever you want. You can commit atrocities, human rights atrocities, and you are somehow in the moral right because you are the oppressed. And the oppressor, on the other hand, is always guilty. So, of course, there's this rush to become a victim and become an oppressed class because not only does it give you status in our modern Western kind of upside-down world, but now it also gives you cover for literally whatever... piece of garbage kind of human you want to be. I mean, it's, it's not complicated to me. And this, I mean, I think this is, it is, there have been many clarifying moments, but this one in particular, I feel has been particularly just clarifying to me as somebody who's occupied this weird wasteland of the center. And, you know, I just got dragged by the entire right wing for saying that the right has a woman problem. And under, it was interesting because I, and I've been thinking about this a lot in the wake of all of this just tragedy under a lot of the comments that I wasn't looking at, my friends were sending to me, they were like, Oh, I guess it's, um, 
all about, you know, like repeal. It was all the repeal the 19th, repeal the 19th were in my comments, but also then somehow it got to the Jews and there was like repeal the 19th and and somehow the Jews were to blame too for feminism, apparently. And there is, I, I feel that there is a very strong this, and this is on the right wing. So you see this, you know, the right is not divorced from any kind of anti-Semitism at all. Although I do think the, I think they do a better job of, calling out the extremists in their own party than on in our case on the, or my former party the left they elevate the them they elevate these ideas they write letters from Harvard like you said all of you would be murdered all of you <laughs> it's just like it's so weird to me you and we've seen this in America particularly in the past couple of weeks all of these activists being murdered and people were kind of laughing like, oh, ha, 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 these are your policies, which I don't think it's ever good to laugh at, you know, someone being murdered. Um, But we've also seen this, uh, we've seen kind of these chickens coming home to roost with people who who would, would be supportive of the people who are murdering them and defending them. I wonder how they felt about that, you know, and, the, and are, are you going to martyr yourself for this cause? Is, is that also what we're creating? Just an entire class of people willing to be martyred. It, it seemed to me so psychotic that you would have, you know, just to go a bit caricatured for a minute, that you would have these kind of purple haired, non-binary, trans friendly, um, relativistic activists in the West who believe the craziest things that the vast majority of the public does not believe, you would have those kinds of people saying, well, you know, I'm on the side of Hamas. I'm going to go on the streets of New York or the streets of London and wave the Palestinian flag. I have no problem with people waving the Palestinian flag, of course, but they're doing it because they want to express support for what they ridiculously see as a a revolutionary uprising. And you do, it does get to a point where you think, um, if anyone in Hamas, this kind of boorish, bigoted, patriarchal, violently homophobic movement, Hamas officials have been arrested and I think in some cases killed for homosexual behaviour. You know, Gaza is not a happy, crappy, nice place for women or minority groups to live. And you get to a point where you think, what is it? Is this some kind of self-hatred that they would express support for a group like this? Or is it cluelessness? Or is it a situation where the desire to signal one's virtue, in this case by saying, I'm super pro-Palestine, overrides the recognition that things are a bit more complicated than that. It's it's hard to work out what is the thinking of posturing leftists in relation to an issue like this. Mm, I know it, it is. And I think it probably varies from in individual to individual what, what's actually driving it. But that group, that group mentality is very, very strong, you know, the desire to kind of fit in and signal that you're, and I would say that this, and this is why I feel really like the, I've lost hope kind of in the left being salvaged because people are like, oh, the tide is turning, people are waking up. And then you see that letter from Harvard. And as many people have pointed out, these are people who will be in charge of everything in 10 years. And to think that this kind of anti-Semitism is not festering in all of the halls of power is to to kind of blindfully 
turn an eye to what's going on. I just can't do that. I, I, it's just historically, everyone's had a reason, you know, for all of history to kill Jews. It's just like, yeah, there's always a reason there. They did that. And I'm not trying to ignore the whole history there. It's just that I don't think this moment, one day after you're seeing videos of teenagers being gunned down and grandmas being kidnapped and people being shot and whole entire families being taken hostage or killed, that this is your moment to go out and be not just not just saying, oh, hey, we should, you know, keep the context in mind, but also to be celebrating, to be seen celebrating. This is, this is, I feel like I live in upside down. It is, it is, it is crazy to me. This is barbarism. These people would happily enslave everyone in America and everyone in the UK. You think that you're going to be somehow saved from this revolution that you're cheering for? You are the people they're coming after. You are the people they want to take down. You mouthy broad in the middle of New York City is exactly the person they want to shut up. It's so weird to me. It is so weird. It, it is like, I, I get to the point where it's like, am I the crazy one? Is this what? But this is tribalism. It's just, tribalism infected us all online and now we're seeing it in real life. It, it happened online. We, we got divorced from our Western ideal. And like so many people have pointed out, these are the same people who will like have you banned for hate speech. <laughs> so murdering innocent civilians is something you cheer for. And if I said men and women are different, you would have me banned or in the UK, you guys are even more bonkers. Well, it seems like there's some pushback, but it's nuts. It's we live in, I can't, I can't, I don't really know. And I would say this is all just online, but it's not. It's, it's definitely offline. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where it starts to get a bit scary. And it, it's like um, I, I was having, I had the exact same thought this week where 
We live in a country here in the UK. I know America is similar as well, although at least you guys have the First Amendment, of which I'm very envious. But here in the UK, um, the left will cancel you if you say that someone with a dick is a man and not a woman. I mean, they will hound you at university. I mean, I've been protested against when I've turned up at Oxford or Cambridge because I have said those things. And then you have left-wingers here who have said over the past few days, they've literally said that Hamas's invasion of Israel is a day of celebration. That's a, a verbatim quote from Navarra Media, which is a left-wing publication here. The kind of people who will cancel you if you say that men are not women. You look at this stuff and, and like you, I think lots of people probably think, am I the one going mad? You know, what's going on here? But it's interesting just to take it on a little bit, it is it's interesting that for you, this event and the response to it kind of crystallized your concern that the left cannot be salvaged. I mean, I've I've had that concern for quite a long time. Lots of issues are just... I have too. Yeah, and lots of issues just add to it. There's always an issue where you think, right, it's definitely not salvageable now after that. And this is one of those issues without question. I think that's absolutely right. But could you just say a little bit uh, for our listeners over recent years, what are the things, what what are the events, what are the ideas that made you as someone who was, you know, in the centre, uh, a progressive person, bear in mind that progressive in the UK is a flattering term. I think in America it's a bit more complicated. What are the things that made you think the left's losing the plot? I mean, it was kind of a slow, I guess, slowly then suddenly. It was, it was something that was happening pre-Trump and then Trump kind of it just exacerbated everything. I didn't really understand how we went from this person that was a buffoon overnight to literally Hitler when he actually got the nomination. So that was confusing to me. There was a lot of hypocrisy that I was calling kind of high heel hypocrisy where the left was always talking about feminism. And then they start and and they were talking about what Hillary wore and we shouldn't judge her and this is sexist. And then the minute Melania and Ivanka became power players, it was open season on talking about what they were wearing and how they dressed and how they looked. And that felt, I'm like, can we just have some, I guess that's really where I'm still so naive is that I just hope that people have some kind of principle or, or, or consistency. And in, in a world where it's, everything is power and you're always jockeying for power, then this is the only thing that matters. So you you can just be shameless. And I know I've seen the right say, well, now we need to play by their rules. These are the left's rules and we're going to play by them. And that's terrifying because... Um, I worry about I worry about what any group does with a lot of power, but... And I, I'm not sure that we're any humans are kind of able to get outside that desire to, <laughs> to, to be in control and have power and the little tyrant that's in all of us. You see it when you have toddlers, <laughs> you're like, we're all tyrants. It just gets socialized out of us, but we're all little dictators. We are born this way. <laughs> we're all born to just order people around and want and try and get what we want and then we hopefully get some manners and some socialization and learn how to share. 
and grow up a little and learn that working with other people is is usually beneficial. Although I don't know, it seems like the world is run by just adult toddlers now. That's a really good point. I think, you know, in the old world, you'd have your dictatorial tendencies socialized out of you. So you might have been a little Hitler when you were three or four, but by the time you were 14 or 15, you were hopefully becoming a gentleman or I don't want to say lady, that's a bit old fashioned, but you know what I mean, a, a kind of a socialized, civilized human being on their way to adulthood. And I think that happens less and less because I think parents are increasingly nervous and cautious. Uh, parenting experts will often say to them, don't put the foot down too much. Don't Definitely say no. Don't- there's a whole yeah. movement to, about not saying no, say no in parenting. It's crazy to me. And this has been around for a long time. When I worked with kids with autism, there was a whole kind of, oh, we don't say no. We just kind of work. And that's different, I think, when you're working with kids with special needs and that you're coming from uh, m- modalities that are generally more behavioral. And you're kind of like, you t- do this and then you get this and and trying to resist that when you're working with special needs kids. But I mean... We do live in a world where it seems like no one has any boundaries. You know, I think boundaries are important. I grew up in a household that didn't have great ones. I had to learn them as an adult. And wow, what a miracle they are. And I still struggle with with having, um, knowing when to say no and knowing when someone isn't crossing a boundary. But it seems like that, idea is antiquated. This this idea of having to hear the word no and hear that you can't do something you want. You know, it's just like you're an oppressor. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think that the disappearance of those boundaries, I think where it expresses itself most clearly and most worryingly is in relation to the boundaries between adults and children. So you have a situation now where you have kind of adults who are basically overgrown infants in many instances and children who are increasingly encouraged to take on adult ideas and even adult forms of culture. So, for example, in the UK recently, there was a controversy over a pro-pride reading book for kids and it was being read by four-year-olds and five-year-olds at a nursery in England, which included an image of two old men in BDSM leather gear um, kissing each other. I would murder. Yeah, kissing each other in the <laughs> street. Anyone who showed that to my kid should go to jail. Yeah. It's crazy. And one of the other images in the book was of a trans man, i.e. a woman, um, I, I would say a woman, with scars under her breasts where she'd had her breasts removed. And this was a book that was being read by four-year-olds. And what was interesting is that when two of the parents, a mum and a dad, complained about this to the school, they were called bigots. You know, who uh, only a bigot could possibly be opposed to a kid reading a book like this. Now, I find these things frustrating because, you, you know, the old kind of blue haired fundamentalist Christian assault on books in schools is not something I was comfortable with either. You know, get, for example, get to kill a mockingbird out of schools or don't teach them John Steinbeck's off mice and men or whatever else it was. I I really do think that when kids get to the age of 11 and 12 and 13, they should be confronted with challenging literature. You know, not American Psycho or 120 Days of Sodom or anything like that, but certainly with literature that challenges them. But there is such a thing as age appropriateness. 
and the enforcing of boundaries for very young kids who should not be subjected to material like this. But we've lost sense of that, haven't we? We have, but it also leaves this, this, well, we have, and it, it seems to leave a vacuum where there are no adults left in the room either. So I recently interviewed Paula Scanlon and she was on the team with Leah Thomas the swimmer at the University of Penn, who famously has become this controversial figure because Leah kicks everybody's asses in all the meets. And Paula said something that was really, it just stuck with me. She, they kept waiting. They, the, they were kids. I mean, they're, they're not kids. They're young adults in college, but they kept waiting for it. They're like, oh, somebody will stop this. Some, the adults will step in and stop this. I was very happy to see your prime minister recently kind of take a stand and say, we're not going to be bullied into thinking boys and girls are, are not, men and women are different. Like, why is this the only world leader that's saying this? Why is this, where are all, all of the adults have abdicated their duty and this feels irresponsible to me. You, you are, you don't, Instead of having to, it is not easy as a parent, you often have to do things. It would be much easier to just let my kid eat whatever they wanted, let them do whatever they wanted. That's the easy path to being a parent. The easy thing to do is just let everyone do whatever they want and then take no responsibility for it and say, well, they're just, this is just how, you know, they're just, they're free. This is just them being free to think and do what they want. It's, often making decisions that are hard in the immediate sense and hopefully have benefits in the long run for their own like sleeping patterns or for their own ability to self-regulate or for their long-term health as a, a somebody who's eating and i don't I, I don't know it seems very like very basic stuff this seems very basic i don't understand how we've really just lost the plot. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how the, because then what is, how do you even fight this? How do you, it's so pervasive. You see, even in the, all the, even so to go back to your original question, the many things that happened, one of which was just the fundamental devaluing of free speech. And when you see the polls of all the kids, they, they're not really for it. You know, the younger generation is not, they don't really believe in privacy. They don't really believe in free speech. This is, this is what happens when you're raised online. You know, when you have, you don't have privacy, you are used to self-censoring and policing your own language because you have to, in order to get around these crazy arbitrary censors, all the doublespeak these kids, it's, it is creepy when you hear them, you know, saying like I unalived myself or whatever, because you can't say you kill yourself or you, it, it's even like the other day on TikTok, I saw this video going around and it was this woman talking about rape and she can't say rape on TikTok because it will get the algorithm will demonetize it and they can't even write it. So in its place, they say grape. Now, when you're talking about rape and you're saying grape, it's hilarious. <laughs> it, sh it shouldn't be hilarious. 
but it sounds ridiculous yeah. and hilarious. Yeah. And this, it's, uh, yeah, it's like, it's bananas. It's, I couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, I'm laughing. And this girl's talking about something very serious, but she's saying grape over and over again. Uh, I mean, that is absolutely bizarre. And, but that does make one want to laugh. If someone's saying I was great and, and it's terrible because, you know, rape is not a laughing <laughs> matter as, as we all know. Um, the thing that worries me most about some of the new generation, and I'm not the kind of person who thinks that all the problems we face in our society is down to a 21-year-old with blue hair at Harvard or Oxford. I think it's much more complicated than that. And there's also the question which we've just been touching on, which is how they got like this, which I think is down to our generation and maybe other people even slightly older than us. Um, but one thing that worries me about the younger generation, uh, is this extreme psychic vulnerability because of, you know, and, and I think that explains their opposition to freedom of speech and, and even their opposition to privacy that, as you've just outlined there, because if you think that, um, your identity is the be all and end all of everything, it's, it's, you know, the personal is political to an extreme degree, then any kind of criticism of your identity or your politics or your way of life is going to is going to be experienced as an attack on the self as a kind of an existential assault on you as an individual so they have this incredibly vulnerable response to any form of criticism and, and of course we know that gives rise to safe spaces um no platforming disinvitation sense censorship on campus you know i've been protested against a couple of times at universities here in the uk and and one time i was speaking at the oxford union and there was a bunch of students outside with um candles and I, I asked them and they were protesting against me and I asked them why they had candles and they said this is a vigil for all the trans people that you have killed with your articles and you, and so I, I made a joke I just said well I don't remember doing that I must it must have slipped my mind but there is this sense amongst these activists that your wounds literally physically hurt them how do you I find it very difficult to know how to engage with people like that. I don't really know what to say. What Have you had any experiences along those lines? I've had some. I, I generally, I, I just, I, I've come from the Joe Rogan school of interacting online, which is post and ghost. I just don't, I don't even engage, especially <laughs> online. In real life, I'm not looking to like own people in real... I haven't been, I don't speak that often at places. So I haven't been protested by universities. I, right. I'm not necessarily that kind of culture warrior yet. Um, that's not to say I won't be in the future. I, I don't know how to engage because I can't even validate a lot of their premise. So if I feel like the premise from which they're coming is not even something that is reality based, which oftentimes it's not, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't know how you engage with somebody like that. In or in order to engage, you have to kind of accept this the term that like the terms you're speaking about are the same, which is often impossible. And so I'm not. I don't know. It's very. I, f I feel like a lot of the kids will just grow out of it. You know, we we had our moment. I, I joke a lot. I'm like, just go get a piercing and like a tattoo and go be goth <laughs> for a minute. You don't need to like chop your body parts <laughs> off. Dear Lord. Every generation, it does seem to get more extreme. I mean, our parents, like it was long hair and women wearing pants. And now it's, 
And then for us, it was like goth and piercings and tattoos. And now it's change your gender. Um, Mr. Potato Head. I, I don't. Yeah. So I'm not sure what the, the <laughs> evolution of the reacting to your parents will be next. Maybe it'll go like full. I guess we are kind of seeing it. It's like full trad, you know, back to the back to the gender roles and the and the women stay home and maybe it's a like the lots of people join the army and, and we return to to those things that we all rebelled against. I used to see that a lot with the Bernie Man kids. Like there were kids who kind of were raised in like the Bernie Man culture. And they were all like, I'm joining the army. I'm I'm gonna become a lawyer. I'm gonna go work for the DEA. You know, it's like, yeah, how are you gonna rebel? You're gonna become conservative. Yeah. Well, I uh, yeah, I was I went to a Roman Catholic school here in the UK, and I I often meet liberals who had much more liberal, relaxed upbringings than mine, who are against faith schools. They want to close them all down which I think is the bad idea. I think parents should have the choice about where they send their kids. But I always made the point to them, look, one of the great things about going to a Catholic school, which was a convent school, it was literally run by nuns, is that it it, it actively invites criticism and skepticism and elements of rebellion. And virtually every kid at my school, I mean, we didn't all become raging Richard Dawkins fans, although some of us did. But when you're surrounded by that kind of culture, you do ask questions. Whereas the thing that worries me about contemporaries of mine who went to schools that were much more relaxed and didn't really believe in anything and everything is equally valid and everything deserves a round of applause. You think you're just pushing against a blancmange all the time. There's there's nowhere really to go. There's nowhere, there's no way to define yourself in opposition to something if you're not being given anything. So that kind of flat relativistic culture worries me in terms of how people grow up, how they rebel, how they define themselves. But I did want to ask you on, um, you, said a, you said something earlier about, which I thought was really important, about the, um, the currency of victimhood. And I wanted to ask you about that specifically, especially in relation to the gender issue and the trans issue, which I think is spinning out of control in both of our countries. Uh, we just had a, one of the Let Women Speak gatherings here in the UK, and there was a trans counter-protest, as there always is, and this, what was interesting is that this counter-protest was full of actual men, I mean, just men, um, a couple of men who claimed to be women, but mainly men, and they were chanting, shut your fucking mouth, shut your fucking mouth, and <laughs> trying to drown out the women on the other side who were all women. And you just think, it's it's really interesting because there have always been men who have want to, wanted to say to women, shut your fucking mouth. And but, now they get And to. now they can because yeah. they can present themselves as the victims and the women are the oppressors. I mean, how have we arrived at that situation? Even, even worse are the allies. Like, you don't even have to be trans. You can just be an ally of trans and say, shut, shut up to women. So you don't have to go through the hassle of putting on a dress. You can just be, you know, an ally and be like, shut your mouths. I don't know. I have this ongoing joke that I've been doing on my YouTube show, Dumpster Fire, Patriarchy So Crafty. And it's because I, I grew up, weirdly, I, I was always skeptical of feminism, even as, I, even as a kid in my English class with the teacher who, you know, you, you all have that, you know, liberal teacher who teaches you about feminism. And I was always, I was just always a 
contrarian, I guess, by nature somewhat. And I, I was like, well, what's the problem? I don't want to go into the rat race. Why do I have to feel like I need to do this? Sounds great staying at home and cooking. And I still feel that way to a certain extent. Um, and I would laugh about this idea of the patriarchy. I mean, as a woman and a young woman, I felt like I had a lot of power, particularly in the West. There was nothing I, I didn't perceive myself as being limited in what I could and couldn't do. And uh, this is not true for large swaths of women throughout the entire world, but it was certainly true for me. And I felt, you know, pretty lucky to be able to, to do that. And then once I came into kind of my own sexual power, I, I, I felt extremely powerful, even if I had no idea how to wield it. So I didn't, I didn't really buy into this idea. And then as, as I've seen the culture shift around me, I've started joking, like the patriarchy so crafty, it'll turn itself into a woman to get back on top. <laughs> And now I'm like, you know, I didn't believe in the patriarchy and I was kind of skeptical of this. And now I'm like, okay, maybe they're right. Maybe the patriarchy is real. It's everywhere. Now men are putting dresses on and telling women to shut up and beating us in our own sports. Like it, it, every time I have a discussion like this, I am like, how am I having this conversation? I just spoke with Helen Joyce. I'm like, how, are, do you not every day of your life wonder how the F we got here? Yeah, it's crazy. And I, I've had Helen Joyce on the pod a couple of times. And um, I do wonder how she manages to stay sane, given she's so embroiled in this issue and has written about it so extensively. No, I've I've had a similar experience, actually. I was always a bit sceptical of feminism. I'm still a bit sceptical of feminism. I mean, the, I think the idea of feminism I'm most sceptical of I've always been skeptical of victim feminism, which kind of comes around in the 1990s, I guess, and maybe a bit later, you know, women as constantly requiring protection. And I've always been skeptical of the feminist idea that women are a sex class, because I think that interferes with class politics. And I think a working class woman has more in common with a working class man than she does with the woman who employs her in the big corporation. But even given that, I've had a similar experience to you where I have looked at some of these trans protests and the trans movement more broadly and demanding the right to go into women's spaces and get your penis out as Leah Thomas has allegedly done. And you think, okay, so now we're fighting for the right of men to flash women, you know, the right of, of men to, to, uh, to go into women's domestic violence shelters and say, how you doing ladies? I'm a bloke. It, I mean, that is where it really does become an attack on women's rights, whether we define ourselves as feminists or not. It seems clear to me that women's rights are under attack. Yeah. Not to mention the weird denial that any men would take advantage of this situation. That's the other strange... It, it, it is so inconsistent. That is... That's the problem that I have with so many of these ideologies. They clash constantly. They make no sense. They're completely incoherent. You, you, were, you weren't born in the right body. Bi biology doesn't matter, but you need hormones and surgeries to make yourself... Like, what? How is this even logical? It's not even logical. And then you have therapists and you have doctors getting on board with this because it's a money grab. It is, it's, it's, it's criminal. It, I mean, talk about a criminal operation that's happening. And then I just think like, I, and I worry about this for myself 
because so many people in the past few days, particularly around this Israel-Palestine stuff, you're like, oh, you're not a serious thinker. You're an internet meme. That's what you are. You're just a meme. I mean, perfect example is that crazy shirtless guy who's from your country, I think, um, Andrew Tate. He had some tweet that was like, Israel vaccinated its people. I would be more, I would live in Palestine with my pure blood, like Allah. I was like, what? You are a person like millions of people are listening to? Your people think they need to wrestle with your ideas? Seriously? I, I know that people will get mad for me even saying that because the minute you criticize anyone who represents your identity or your cause, you also will get attacked by everybody. Um, but that was just like, what? what kind of incoherent thinking i don't even know how to how to unpack something like that into anything coherent yeah well this pod is a very safe space for criticizing andrew tate i can tell you that oh, okay. he is a complete <laughs> i mean the worst hey, how is this guy like he's a south park character in real life you couldn't even, I am a satirist. You couldn't even write satire this good if you tried. I just, I, I feel, I feel really, I feel really more and more lost, honestly. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, he's just a dyed-in-the-wool misogynist. I mean, there's, you know, it's like you see kind of the woke left or whatever we're supposed to call them um, celebrating the right of Leah Thomas to beat Riley Gaines in a sport that Riley Gaines has been devoting her whole life to being excellent at. And you think, right, you're a bunch of misogynists. And then on the right, on the kind of, especially the very online right, you see people cheering on Andrew Tate, who has allegedly exploited women, certainly speaks about women in the most extraordinarily degrading terms, you know, grab them by the tits, treat them like this, treat them like that. You just think, right, so from the online left and the online right, you have this pincer movement of prejudice and bigotry. And sometimes you do think, where is that sensible ground where you can actually stand up for decency and equal rights and not be attacked by either of those sides? I don't know. It's it's like quicksand. It's evaporating rapidly. I, I don't know that it exists. I mean, even I, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, because I'm trying to write this piece and in order to write anything, um, I, I had to force myself to endure a Tate brother live stream. And I listened to, <laughs> and I listened to the, um, 
interview he did with Candace, which I think, you know, look, I'm all for people reforming their lives. But what's interesting to me is that these men in particular who are like, you got to take responsibility. And this is like manosphere. I'm like, you blame women for everything. Or you say that you were the victim of your class circumstances and you just did what you had to do. You're still you're still blaming somebody for everything about your entire life. Like, oh, I just trafficked those girls because, you know, I come from a rough part of town. Like what? And Candace is like, yeah, we all come from different places. And I was like, what? This is, I'm being gaslit. This is crazy. I, I get that he's become in the absence of the adults in the room who have abdicated their duty for whatever weird reason, because they want to be liked by a bunch of woke kids that they, these people will kind of rise to power and take, take over the discourse to a certain extent, but they're, (laughs) I mean, okay. Yeah. Bitches. And that's the other weird thing too, is seeing like Tucker and Candace and people on the right who are engaging with him. I'm like, this guy is like the rap. He has the whole kind of hustle vibe of rappers of the nineties that like the moral majority went after. Everything is upside down. You know, the left is all like pro big pharma and they're on board with whatever. The right is suddenly like, yeah, we're going to embrace this hustle culture. And, and (laughs) I'm like, I've, I don't know what's going on guys. I, and I'm not saying everyone should return, you know, obviously things change, but I think a lot of people have sacrificed their principles on at the altar of power. And now, and because the internet is this like eternal now, there's no, everything moves so fast. Everybody is talking about the current thing. There's no real, you can be shameless. You can just be shameless forever. And, and actually it's profitable. Yeah, absolutely. And the more shameless you are, the more profitable it gets. I mean, that's the problem. And I try really hard not to give into the victim culture. I, there are many instances where I could say, look at me, I'm being attacked, subscribe. <laughs> and I just don't do it because I'm like, this is fundamentally not the kind of world I want to live in where you just kick a hornet's nest online or piss off a group of people and then say, look at me, I'm being attacked. Like, yeah, we're we're all talking online. That's what, that's, what's going to happen. We're going to get attacked. Um, okay. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions about the right. I mean, I think you and I, and most of my listeners will agree that the left has gone to pot for, uh, I don't want to swear. So gone to pot. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the right. I want to ask you about the Russell brand situation, because for me, that was very interesting and also very frustrating. Obviously, we're, we're slightly limited in what we can say. I don't think we can, we can't, well, we can't imply guilt or anything like that. He, he's accused of certain things and, and it remains to be seen what happens as a consequence of that. But what I found interesting is that I found both sides very frustrating. So on the one side, you had some feminists saying, well, he's guilty. Of course he is. Um, the finger's been pointed. That's the end of the story which makes me uncomfortable because I'm an old-fashioned person who believes in due process. But then on the other side, on the right, you had... So on, on certain sides of feminism, you had instant belief in the accusations. And then on certain sides of the online right, you had instant disbelief. 
these women are lying bitches. They've been put up to it by the establishment. You know, they're trying to take him down because he's a critic of um, whatever, Big Pharma and, and yeah, Matrix. and The Matrix and all that. <laughs> and it's it was a very good example, I thought, even though there are some real stories at the bottom, the bottom of this, which we shouldn't be, of course, dismissive about. I thought it was a good example of how things have gone wrong on both sides. And I know that you had some experience talking about the brand issue online. Just explain to us what what you said and, and what the feedback was that you got. It wasn't great. Um, I, I was, I was, it was another clarifying and upsetting moment for me. I think that I felt very alienated once again. And perhaps this is just my, I, I think I really, I've been thinking so much about this because I think, I like to think I'm comfortable being tribeless, but I really realized in that moment and perhaps people online who accuse me of being on the right, even though I don't feel like I am, are accurately perceiving something that it, I don't want to admit or see myself, which is that I felt like they were a little more open to people who perhaps didn't share all of their beliefs. They, it seemed like they were opening their tent up a little bit more to people who had been abandoned by the left or who felt like they were lost in the culture wars. And then this kind of moment happened and and I was attacked by a lot of people who you know, there's this like whole disgusting body count discourse happening uh, on the right and whatnot. And I was making a joke about it. And this is what led me to say kind of the right has a woman problem. And then I was attacked by like everybody being like, we don't want your, your vote, your whore vote slut. You know, like, <laughs> like, okay, well, thank you for proving my point. Exactly. What is the number that I'm allowed of men, women are allowed to sleep with before they can no longer vote for the right. It just seems like a really self-destructive argument, but it also made me realize that I, I think I, I do feel like I'm not protected. And I think maybe I felt somewhat protected by some of the center right. The far right hates me. They think I'm like some kind of plant from the deep state to undermine conservatism or whatever they say. That's fine with me. But seeing some of the more mainstream people who just automatically jumped on board with the accusations And again, this is something I wrote about extensively during Kavanaugh and Believe All Women. I was like, this is bad. You can't weaponize sexual assault like this. And and Believe All Women is going to create a huge backlash where there's no belief for accusations. And here we are. So it's not surprising to me. It was just somewhat disappointing seeing it from these mainstream speakers who didn't need to say anything but they again felt this need to kind of signal to their tribe and more and more i realized i mean it seems like a war you know there and i'm not and i don't think it's left right i think there's a there's multiple weird wars going on and i don't really align with either side and that's terrifying in a war <laughs> like am i just a mercenary who because i'm not shameless enough to be a mercenary either so i'm kind of just i i think that's where i felt very let down 
Um, and then I was joking. I just actually did the trigonometry and I don't even think, I don't know that it'll even be out by the time this airs, but you know, on the, on the left, I would see people being like, Oh, well, don't be surprised when the leopard's eating your face. I'm like, you guys can't even define what a woman is. So I don't want to hear from you either. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you're, when you're criticizing the right for having a woman problem, the last people you want to hear from are the people who don't know what a woman is, you know, they can, they can pipe. Yeah. But the, um, I've had a similar experience, I think, where you, you start to feel comfortable within a certain grouping or not necessarily a tribe, but you know, you've got friends and allies online or who read your stuff or who send you messages and you think, oh, this is quite nice. But then there comes these flashpoint issues and they all go, they all say, oh, I thought I liked you, but actually you're the scum of the earth. So I'm now going to go somewhere else because you have a difference of opinion on something. And it, it reminds you how, I think, how fragile some of these alliances are, which is why I think alliances are always better built on principles and values rather than a kind of tribal feeling. And um, I think I think we're starting to see some of those alliances built on principles and values, you know, in relation to freedom of speech, for example. Uh, there are new groups now saying, look, we're opposed to all forms of racism, whether it comes from the far right or the identitarian left. So there are these kinds of new groups emerging, which I think is very positive. But but I wanted to, on the the right problem, the right wing problem with women, I thought, I think you're, some of the criticisms you've made of the Me Too movement, post Kavanaugh and other examples as well, I think they're really important and pertinent and and have stood the test of time. And it always amazes me that, you know, the, the literary moral anchor of Western society is Harper Lee's um, To Kill a Mockingbird. But the core message of that book, which is that you should not rush to judgment, even in cases of rape. I mean, that's literally what the book is about, has completely been lost to the to history. It's it's very interesting. But I, but on on the on the right wing element in relation to this, I did want to ask you what your thoughts are on the whole body count discourse or the marriage discourse and all those things that happen online. I find the whole thing completely bamboozling. Um, I'm not on Twitter. I'm only on Instagram, which is mostly, you know, recipes and selfies and people saying nice things. It's a much more pleasant environment. But how do you understand that culture? What do you think is going on with the trad wife thing? You know, you have one side of the culture war saying marriage is terrible. It's a trap for women. Get out while you can. And then you have the other side saying marriage is the only good thing a woman can do. And everything else is just wasting your time. Where do you come at that discussion? It's really interesting because I, and I feel like I have a, a strange perspective on this and I often feel incoherent because I'm, I'm not sure how to articulate a lot of the things. And perhaps the only way I can work through it is a book because I'm not sure how to even unpack the way that I'm feeling in this exact moment because I came from writing for Playboy and I used to, and that was a weird time to be writing for Playboy. It was 2015. And it was right at the dawn of Me Too. Playboy had gone non-nude for a minute. They were wrestling with their own identity and their history in the wake of all of this Me Too. And it was this, the anti-man sentiment was insanely high. And I was writing to just red-blooded American men because I was a, a waitress who had been trying to be a writer. I didn't go to college. So I kind of came, I had just gotten sober in 2013. So I kind of woke up from like 
a basically blackout <laughs> and then and merged into the culture wars and had no idea what was going on. So I was like, what the, I wrote a book, I wrote a, I thought what I thought was going to be celebrated by feminists on the left was a, it was a reaction to somebody who had wrote, you know, a, a, a case against blowjobs. It was, I think it was more dirty than that. And I wrote like in defense of them, which was not something that was very exciting for my father when I told him <laughs> my, my first my first freelance piece was bought. Um, <laughs> and it was actually something that I got a lot of backlash for from the left. And then I wrote another piece. Um, you Men were always kind of like, oh, she's just not that into me. And um why do women date assholes? And I wrote, I mean, this is like borderline Andrew Tate now that I think about it, but it's kind of like women date assholes because you're a pussy. And that's what, that's what I was sorry for the swearing. That's what I was. That was the title of the, the essay. And that got really demolished by the left wing as well as the men's right activists on the right. So I, that was my real first flashpoint of being attacked by both the left and the right. And then, but I never really trusted the right because I had seen the way they spoke about women, my kind, um, when I was writing for Playboy. And then I got caught in the crossfire of the culture wars. And even still, the, the, the right will, and I would used to show my boobs online because I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I have a long history with being provocative, the real kind of provocative. <laughs> and not just verbally. <laughs> and I still get heat from it from the right wing and they didn't like it when some of the right conservacon figures were talking to me. And it was so it's been it has been bananas for me completely. And I never really trusted the right. And I have a friend who says, and I've talked about this a lot, that the kind of core value in America is but the right. You know, every these people who are centrists and the IDW and the free press types will and Bill Maher, they'll all kind of be like, well, the left has gone crazy, but the right, even while they look at what the left has done, which is consolidate power, censorship and big tech and corporations. And they ha hold almost all of the institutional power from top to bottom. And other than maybe in, in the in the um, Supreme Court. And so you, you look at these things and I start asking, you know, and this to bring come full circle to the, the moment that we are in right now, I'm like, shouldn't we be saying, but the left, <laughs> you know, maybe perhaps there needs to be more of that because even with the right coming after me recently and saying that I shouldn't be allowed to vote, um, trolls, probably 12 year olds and they don't really have that much power and they're, yeah, I, I worry that they, if you're for due process, then you should not automatically take a side in anything right away. You shouldn't automatically be against or for, you should just shut up and say, let's see how this plays out. But people coming, you know, to someone's defense before they'd even heard the allegations, I'm like, you're not for due process. You're not for it either. You're you're already shaping the way people view this with your own statements. So you're, you don't believe in it either. 
Um, and that's disappointing. And I've always kind of looked at the right with that side eye because I don't feel like they actually want me and they expressed that recently. And so, yeah, I find myself, but the left and, but the right, I don't, I really, I find myself feeling even more homeless than ever before. I don't know how you feel. Yeah. I think I, I, I feel similar, which is why I I always look out for you know, opportunities to make alliances. And I'm pretty happy to be in alliances with people who I don't agree with on some things, but do agree with on other things. I think that's a pretty natural part of politics. But it seems to me that there are decreasing numbers of people who are willing to do that and they want full, pure agreement on everything or else you're out. And that I find very frustrating. But I I think for me, it's like... um, I think the right is losing the plot on many, many issues. I agree with you that it's the left that has the cultural upper hand. So that seems more of a problem, I think, for those of us who want to speak freely and get important ideas out there. For me, I've always just been more disappointed with the left um, because in its original incarnation, the left was a pretty good idea, which is that um, we should have democracy. Ordinary people's concerns should be taken seriously. We should grow the economy and make sure people have good jobs and good incomes. And uh, we should not judge people by their race and we should not judge people by their sex. We should take class interests more seriously. Those were good ideas. And the way in which the left has shunted all those to one side and has now become pretty classist, certainly anti-women, certainly anti-freedom and even anti-democratic, is just a betrayal, I think, of their founding principles. So if I seem angrier with the left than I am with the right, it's not because I have more in common with the right. It's because I think what the left has thrown away is some really important stuff for humankind. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the right is was kind of speaking for that important stuff because that is part of conservatism, is conserving these foundational principles that the country was built on. And, and then they get caught in this culture war stuff and, and purity tests. Like this was something that was very, I don't even, how are we still talking about the 2020 election? If you're still talking about that, I can't, I can't even take you really seriously because we, I would like to move forward into a, into an election where we're actually dealing with what's happening currently and that's a purity test. You know, you there there's a there's a purity test around an identity and there are purity tests around ideas and I'm not sure it leaves a lot of people feeling like we feel but at the end of the day lines have been drawn. You know, I'm not sure. I, yeah, it's I'm grateful for conversations like this although I know that they leave a lot of people feeling mad and frustrated with me and, and my I'm not even trying to ride a fence. You know, it's like people think that I do this just to be like cute or it's like some grift or something, which by the way, if it's a grift, I'm failing miserably. (laughs) Um, I am poor. Please subscribe. I'm just kidding. Um, Can can I still use that? (laughs) Can I just be like an old school beggar? Just like, hey guys, I'm not being attacked or a victim. I'm just poor. Please subscribe. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm very confused. I'm yeah. very confused. And yeah. that is where I find myself over and over and over again. Yeah. And you know, you just feel like I want, you want to say to your listeners, listen, you will agree with Bridget on some things and you will disagree with her on other things. And that's okay. 
and it's, totally it's okay. fine. It's absolutely fine. And I feel like I find myself saying that about myself to people all the time. It's fine. You know, we agree and we disagree. That's that's human nature. And I might disagree with Bridget from three years yeah. ago. That's okay too. We're allowed to evolve. That's what that's what is so strange about this moment. I, I want people to be able to evolve. That's why it, as long as I think they're genuine in their evolution and not just, you know, trying to pivot out of being a criminal or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, everyone should subscribe to all your things. That's a given, you know, the YouTube, the podcast, everything else. So people should look that up for sure. But for now, I just have one more question for you, which is just on humor and comedy. Um, I mean, you are known as someone who laughs out loud at some of these things and you've laughed out loud on this podcast at some of these things, which is very refreshing. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the state of laughter and comedy in general and where that's going, because I hear different reports and different accounts from what's happening in the US. So my friend Lou Perez will say on the one, he, he wrote a really good book, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, which is about the state of American comedy. And he says, on one hand, it's really, really bad because comedians are woke and um, easily offended and so on. But he says, on the other hand, it's pretty good because people are going online and setting up their own YouTube channels and doing their own kind of comedy and they don't have to rely on the kind of gatekeepers of old. Where do you think comedy is at? How important do you think comedy is in relation to the kind of current moment that we're living through and the ridiculousness of it? I think it's really important, although I just, have you had Walter Kern on your podcast? No. Oh God, you guys need to talk. He's, he's like our spirit animal for real. He, he is just the greatest human being in, but also hilarious. But I was talking about how we live in this weird time where my, my last name is the name of company for a word that I made up, which is, was impossible to to find in 2006 when I made this word up, which is essentially irony squared or written reality doubles back on itself and becomes literal or beyond parody, which is the era that we are now living in. And he was saying, you know, that's exactly how they kind of desensitize everybody is making things so ridiculous that you just can't help but you have to laugh at it because it's so inconsistent. And so now I feel like I'm part of the problem. But I do think as long as we're laughing, it's important. I live in Austin now and I go to the comedy clubs all the time and the audiences are normal and chill and they're, they're the audiences are very different in Los Angeles where I was. So a lot of it depends on where you are regionally. I think most of Americans and America still has a, a sense of humor. Um, a large portion of America is working class. I don't, again, I think this is a elitist class thing where it's, it's like, have you never worked on a, on a construction site or in a restaurant? Like, do you, do you not know how people joke with each other and roast each other and, and talk to each other all day long on these, in these kinds of mind numbing environments where you're just a worker but they don't, you know, they're, they're constantly being policed by HR and they've lost the ability to laugh. What worries me, I see so much humorlessness, all sides, you know, like you, I'll get it from all sides. Just so everyone's so seriously invested in their, their role in the culture, just this lack of ability 
to be able to take yourself so seriously. It's just, you know, I'll have people be like, this girl's ridiculous. I'm like, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the time the trolls are like my inner monologue, you know, (laughs) you you can't really out troll me. You don't know what it's like up here. Um, But I, I find that it's really important to maintain your sense of humor and find that balance and levity. And I see, you know, I have many friends in Israel and, and I hear the way they're still able to kind of, they're dealing, they're in this and they're still able to laugh. They still want to hear about lighthearted things to get them out of their own heaviness. You can't, I've come from a lot of insanity myself and you cannot live in that heaviness full time. It will, that that's, My friend who had stage four cancer, she put boxing gloves over her bed and then watched comedy every single night and beat it. And I'm sure a lot of it is genetics and treatment and whatever. But I also do think her mentality is correct. Like you have to know when to fight and you also have to know when to give yourself a break and laugh. But um, these are trying times for people. And yet... Still, I look around and feel like I'm lucky every day of my life and great and grateful to be alive and grateful to I still feel like we have been given such a gift and there's so much we still have so like of all humankind, just how easy it is for us now. I can order a pizza and have it delivered. That's that is still crazy. I get on a plane and I'm like, this is still nuts that I can do this. I don't, I still just feel very grounded and, and, and being grateful. I think that pulls me out of a lot of the insanity too. So laughter and gratitude. Those are my, my medicines. Bridget, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.